Today we start a new series, three weeks, the season of thanks, as we're preparing for Thanksgiving. And the first message is entitled, Grateful for Life, and of course the text is Genesis chapter 2, verses 4 through 9. Over thousands of years, Jews around the world have developed specific blessings that function as explanations of gratitude. Now, over time, they have grown to encompass nearly everything. For example, when one sees the ocean, they can say, Blessed are you, Lord our God, King of the universe, who made the great sea. Now, there's one blessing that Jews all around the world say each day as they wake up, and it is called the Mode Anai. Here it is. Mode Ani Lefanecha, Melechai Bekayam, Shehechazarta Bimishmati Bechamla, Raba Emunetecha. I wasn't going to attempt to say that. Now, I can't make out words, I can make out nouns and verbs, but. That's what, it's like, that's what it looks like, and that's what it sounds like in Hebrew. Now, the translation is, I thank you, living and eternal king, for returning my soul within me in compassion. Great is your faithfulness. That's a prayer that every Jew around the world, when they wake up in the morning, they say that prayer as the first thing that they do. Now, we look to our text in Genesis, we understand that chapters 1 and 2 describes God's act of recreating everything. Specifically, chapter 2, verse 7, there are details telling us how we came to be, the creation of man. And, of course, verse 7 says, Then the Lord God formed man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being, literally a soul. God's act of creation was an intimate act. God leaned into and breathed into man's nostrils the breath of life. And you look at the creation account, you see this not happening with any other creature. This is something specifically unique about man. Now, when I say man, I mean mankind, I mean men and women. There is something different about us from all over creation. It's something different about us. Keep that in mind. Now, this one-time act, excuse me, this was not a one-time act of his breathing, his no, breathing into the breath of life. The breath of life, which we breathe in and out of our lungs, happens every single day and night. Job referred to it in this fashion. Job 27, verses 3 and 4. For as long as life is in men, and the breath of life is in my nostrils, my lips certainly will, speak un, will not speak unjustly, nor will my tongue mutter deceit. Now, in contemporary language, we might say, as long as I'm still breathing. See, Job, Job's point is not simply about his life, but rather when he breathes, it's not simply air that he's taking in, but it's God's breath of life. 
And when speaking about the nature and power of God, Paul says, He himself gives to all people life and breath and all things. That's Acts chapter 17, verse 25. And the same point is made by Job. The very breath that you are breathing in at this moment and breathing out is a gift of God. It's the breath of life. Think about that for a moment. You're sitting here in a pew. You might be at home. You're experiencing life or breathing in air. We understand it, taking an oxygen, bringing out carbon dioxide. That is a very gift of God. We need to remember that. That the fact that you can wake up in the morning is a gift from Him. Now, keeping all that in mind, let's look at verse 7 in context. Look at verse 4. This is the account of the heavens and the earth when they, when they were created in the day the Lord God made earth and heaven. Now, look at that. The Lord God. It's very interesting because this is the first time in Scripture you see the divine name Yahweh. And most of your translations will be in all capital letters. Lord, that's telling you that's coming from the Hebrew word Yahweh. And it's right next to the word Elohim, which is translated God. That means creator, all-powerful, almighty, that God can do whatever he chooses to do. It's appropriate for describing the majestic quality of our God, that he is able to do anything. Now, the word Yahweh is associated with the covenant. So here is a picture. What Genesis is telling us, Yahweh, this God in covenant with you, speaking to the Hebrews in the original writing, this God that entered the covenant with you, Yahweh, his personal name, is the same God as Elohim, the creator. For us, that God that you have that personal relationship with, that's the same God as the Creator. It underscores that Yahweh is the all-wise, powerful Elohim Creator. And the personal presence of Yahweh Elohim among His people is not an anomaly. It was inaugurated by God Himself. He desires to have a relationship with man. Look how man was created. God took great care when He created man of dust from the ground he wants to have that relationship now we can talk about in context historically the people of Israel understand the covenant they've entered into them the Mosaic covenant but God has fulfilled with a better covenant a new covenant through Christ and I'm telling you the God who created everything that you see is the same God that desires to have a relationship with you the same God that created the sunshine, the wind, the rain, everything that we can see. All the stars. He knows all the stars by name and calls them out by name. Is the same God that wants to have a relationship with each and every one of you. Now, something interesting happens in chapter 3, verses 1 through 5. That's the fall of man. The word Yahweh never appears in that passage. And I believe it's because the covenant relationship was under attack when the serpent was deceiving Eve. 
this whole idea of relationship, I want you to get a hold of that. The whole idea of God having a relationship was designed from the beginning. And everything we see happen in the Bible from Genesis all the way through to the Revelation is God maintaining that relationship with man, making the way possible. Now look at verse 5. Now no shrub of the field was yet in the earth, and no plant of the field had yet sprouted, for the Lord God had not sent rain upon the earth, and there was no man to cultivate or work or serve the ground. No plant life, why? Well, the verse tells us, doesn't it? No plant life because the Lord God has sent rain upon the earth. Now there was a source of water, as we read about in verse 9, but evidently by itself it wasn't sufficient to support plant life, leading to the critical thing that was missing, the labor of a farmer. Look what it says, no man to cultivate the ground. Two reasons, no plant life, no rain, and no man to cultivate the ground. There is a play on words, especially with the word ground and man. It indicates that the ground needs a man to produce a robust harvest. However, it is God, not man, who provides the gardens and brings life from the ground, as we see in verse 9. You look at verse 6, it talks about a mist. A mist used to rise from the earth. Now, most scholars will refer that, or Greek, excuse me, that mist is either talking about underground streams or perhaps a substantial river. Uh, the word mist or a faint mist is kind of foreign to the Hebrew word that's translated that way. Now, this is where some scholars get in debate. They say, well, that was probably needed because when the ground is kind of moist, you know how it is with sand if you've been to the beach, you get the sand kind of moist, it makes it easier to work with and put things together with. But then again, my argument back will be God can do what he wants. But it's interesting to note that the Bible tells us that God had not sent the rain yet. But the bottom line, as we read about in the next verse, is that God, look what it says, Then the Lord God formed man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. I cannot stress this enough, dearly beloved, God's personal attention and care in this verse. It's comparable back to chapter 1, verse 26, when God says, let us make man in our image. Now, the Hebrew word translated formed is the same Hebrew word that we find in Jeremiah chapter 18, verses 4 through 6, talking about a potter's activity. Jeremiah chapter 18, verses 4 through 6. The vessel that he was making of clay was spoiled in the hand of the potter, so that he remade it into another vessel as it pleased the potter to make. Then the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Can I not, O house of Israel, deal with you as the part, this potter does, declares the Lord. Behold, like the clay in the potter's hand, so are you in my hand, O house of Israel. We find it being used to describe one making wooden images in Isaiah chapter 44, verses 9 and 10. And it's also to describe God forming Israel in Isaiah chapter 40, 45, verses 9 and 11. Here's the point. Like that potter sitting behind the wheel and that clay, there's a big old lump of clay to sit there, right? 
And he start, that reel starts spinning, and that, that potter puts his or, his or her hands to it and starts forming it ever so gently. And if it spoils, it wrecks, they take it again, they mass it, and they start all over again, carefully forming every little... You ever seen the intricate clay pots you can buy at some of these trade days? They're just beautiful. Someone can take a, a piece of clay and do that. That's how God formed you. His own hands forming every aspect of you. He got you just the way he wanted you. And guess what? You're only one of your kind. You are the only you that exists. I think of that for a minute. There'll be no one ever like you any time in history. This is it. This is, this is the only person like you. And of all creation that God spoke into existence or spoke into the ground and stuff came forth from the ground, only man is when God reached down with his own hands and carefully and so intimately formed man and then leaned over and broke into his nostrils the breath of life. See, the source of animal life is attributed to the ground from which they came. You see that in chapter 2, verse 19. What separates us from the animals is that breath of life. We have a capacity to have a unique relationship with the Creator. Expressed by the use of the words image and breath. You ever thought about that? You ever gone somewhere and just stood in amazement of creation? Perhaps that sunset at the beach as the sun dances across the ocean water. Or perhaps up on a mountain and you're looking down and you see all the creation. Perhaps some of you are hunters and you get on that deer stand early in the morning as the sun begins to rise. The fog is real low, you know, kind of like a mist over the, over the forest and it's the stillness of it all. How about if you've been on an airplane and you look down as you're coming in to an airport, you see all these houses, and it boggles my mind that God knows every single house and every single person in that house, what's going on with them, who their parents are, the whole family. It boggles my mind. But not only did God create man, look at verse 8. The Lord God planted a garden toward the east in Eden. And there he placed the man whom he formed. Now note that God does not dwell in the garden. That's where he meets man. That's what made the garden special. Fellowship between the created and the creator. That is what's going on right now in this moment. The created meeting with the Creator. You ever try to fix something? Perhaps an engine, a bike, a part, fishing rod, whatever it is. And you go about it and you try to fix it, but you can't quite get it right. It, ha it helps you if you have an owner's manual or some type of instruction to know how that piece was made. I can fix a car. I'm able to patch it. 
It may run for a while, but guess what? Eventually it will break down and probably do more damage to the engine when it's all said and done. If I had just gone to the owner's manual or the instruction manual made by the manufacturer who made the engine, then I could repair it better. Why is it that we have a manual called the Bible that tells us where we've come from and what God has done, what he, what he has done, what he's currently doing, what he'll do in the future, but yet we keep running to other sources to try to find how do we find meaning and purpose in life. You ever consider this that every actor or actress I've seen on TV have been interviewed? Some of them come out and say, I'm just searching for meaning and purpose, and here's a person, he or she has found all the fame, and the money they could possibly have in this world, and yet they're still looking for purpose and meaning. And people get hooked on alcohol and drugs. Why? To numb the pain. I'm telling you, all you got to do is go to the Bible, and you'll find the answers. Please hear me this morning, dear beloved. You're not a product of some cosmic goo that happened to come together and poof, here you are. No, you're the result of the creator, Elohim, reaching down with his own hands and forming you in his image. Therefore, there is no junk. Everybody in this room, everybody listening to my voice, you are worth it. Well, Tim, how do you know that? Look at the cross of Christ and how can you say otherwise? We run around chasing everything under the sun. God saying, here I am right here. You know, Eden has traditionally been termed paradise. John Milton's painting, Paradise Lost. But in Jewish literature, paradise is the eternal home of the righteous. And in the New Testament, paradise that designates the presence of the ascended Christ and the eternal abode for believers. Now, the Bible does not present the garden as this type of paradise that is popular envisioned, where there is only pleasure without work or concerns. Look at verse 15 of chapter 2. The Lord God took the man and put him into the garden of Eden to cultivate and keep it. So there was some activity that the man had to do. He didn't sit around and lay around all the time, absolutely nothing. There was work for man to do. Look at verse 9. Out of the ground the Lord God caused to grow every tree that is pleasing to the sight and good for food. The tree of life also in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. (laughs) No one can say that God is stingy in this narrative, in this story. No, he puts them in this luscious garden that has all this good food to eat. Adam and Eve could not say, well, there was nothing else to eat. They couldn't uh, cry out deprivation because there was plenty there for them to eat. They couldn't use that as an excuse of why they ate their forbidden fruit. Now, there's two trees that specifically are mentioned. The tree of life produces the source of life in the garden. Its power to convey life is ultimately due to its planet, which is God. Its presence indicates that the garden enjoys life, and eating of the fruit will result in continued life. But the very fact that I can eat something and have continued life, even that's a gift of God, who causes stuff to grow. It amazes you sometimes, you talk about all the science we know, but we tilt and take a seed, 
put it in the ground, bury it, water it, something grows, produces fruit, and we can eat it, and we can have life. Does that seem like a miracle to you? God puts man in this garden, and he can... And by the way, apparently there wasn't thorns and thistles until the fall, because that's what he talks about, the sweat of your brow after the curse of the fall. He tells them, by the, by the uh, sweat of your brow, you will cultivate the ground. Until then, there was nothing. I mean, you just... Can you imagine such a place? No tilling. No weeding. Wow. And apparently there was stuff that looked really good there, so it's pleasing to the sight and good for food. Now we get to the tree of knowledge, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. This is very name would confer that eating of this fruit would give you that knowledge. A kind of knowledge that was exceptional possession of deity, attributed only to God who is the provider of the tree. Now, the tree of life that involved human concerns of life and death is overshadowed by the tree of knowledge of good and evil. That's because the tree of knowledge becomes the tree of decision, and that becomes a touchstone of the destiny of mankind. So what did they do? What, what happened when they ate of that fruit? What what do they do? And a lot of people have spilt a lot of ink exactly talking about what about this tree and what would happen if you ate the fruit and why were they forbidden to do that? Well, the tree of knowledge, tree of the knowledge of good and evil, bestowed a divine wisdom. Now, wisdom is possessed by God and is humanity's proper goal of attainment. But wisdom, how is wisdom achieved? What does the Bible tell us about wisdom? The beginning of wisdom is what? Fear of the Lord not through grasping for it independently of God. There is knowledge that God possesses that man should not seek apart from revelation, and to attain this knowledge is to act with moral autonomy. See, Adam and Eve expressed their independence from God, obtained wisdom possessed by God through moral autonomy, and this meant death because of wisdom was obtained unlawfully. There are some things that we just can't handle. There are some things we think is right, but it's not. It ought to, to, I hate to even use this as illustration, but that's what I can think of. Now, every illustration breaks down. I hope you understand that. But I remember in the first Jurassic Park, uh, Jeff Goldblum's character was asking him, you were so worried about finding out this knowledge, and you were so easy, ready to use it, you didn't stop to ask yourself, should I use it? I think that's what's going on here. They just went and got that knowledge without any direction from God. Apparently, God knew better because he said, don't eat of this. But it was still their decision. In Proverbs chapter 14, verse 12, there is a way which seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. And we, <laughs> how arrogant we are in 21st century America. Well, we're so much more educated. We're so much more enlightened than the ancients. The ancients made all these stories up because they understand weather. They understand this. If we're so smart, then explain to me why we still deal with greed, lust, adultery. We still have the same human condition. We just got better at doing it and hiding it than the other guys did. Now, we started all this by looking at chapter 2, verse 7, about how man was created. 
that God's act of creation was intimate, that he leaned into and breathed into man, and that the very air we breathe to stay alive is a gift from God. That's how you start the season of thanks. That's how you have gratitude every single day when you get up in the morning, thank God that you got life and you can get up. Every day you wake up is a gift. Consider Psalm 139, verses 13 and 14. For you, speaking of God, formed my inward parts. You wove me in my mother's womb. I will give thanks to you, for I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are all your works, and my soul knows it very well. You wove me together. I remember watching my mama stitch a lot, make blankets, pillows, and such. That's how God put you together. When you're in your mother's womb, God was forming you together, weaving you together. Because he has a specific thing or mission he wants you to accomplish. Because you can, he made you that way. We hear that God loves us, but God likes you. He loves the way you handle problems. So you can reach people I can't, and I can reach people you can't. It takes all of us working together, all different gifts. But all formed by the same God to accomplish the mission. How can I sit back and watch the murder of innocent babies in light of what Psalm 139 tells me? Every moment of every day, with each breath that you take, is an opportunity to you to be grateful to God for it. How often we take it for granted. Oh, and tomorrow I will do this and I will do that. This afternoon I will do this and I will do that. Instead, I said, if the Lord wills, I will do this or I will do that. There is a, uh, a prayer by the Eastern Orthodox. And it's called the Jesus Prayer. And as they breathe in, they say, Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God. They, they say that as they're breathing in. And then they stop, they pause. And then they begin to slowly breathe out while they say, have mercy on me, I am a sinner. Now we'll take some time to actually breathe in and say that and hold it and breathe it out, but that's what they do. And when they're done breathing out, all their lungs don't have any more air in them, and it reminds them that even in the act of breathing, they're dependent upon the mercy of God each breath we take that so much for granted the very fact that we can have a life we can get up we can breathe we can see we can hear we have a, a brain that he gave us so we can reason we can think but more importantly we can know the creator that set this whole place in motion because we know he's the creator, but as we looked at verse 7 in context, we can say God is also sustainer. He does great life and say, okay, you're on your own. He put man in a garden and put all sorts of stuff in there that could, could help him maintain his life, have a relationship with his creator. 
Not only God is creator, he's sustainer, but he's also redeemer. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3. He, in this context, speaking of Jesus, is the radiance of his glory, God's glory, and the exact representation of his nature. Listen to this. And upholds all things by the word of his power. Let me stop there for a second. Go out tonight, or if you have the ability, sometime, I, I want you seriously, go out one night, get in the backyard, out here mostly in the country, I know more people are moving in, but get somewhere it's real dark. Get yourself a telescope or just simply look at the night sky. And think about what I said earlier, that God knows every star by name. <laughs> He's keeping them all going. He's keeping the whole universe going. And then consider the stuff that we have to look at through a microscope. The smallest things that we cannot see with our naked eye. You ever study DNA? How DNA works? I watched, I was there when my girls were all born in the hospital. Just the very fact of a baby being born, and what happens inside the room, how a baby comes to be, it's just, well, it's a miracle. Everything comes out. I mean, it's just, I can't, I can't even describe. I mean, it's just, wow. And if God can keep all that going, we call it the laws of nature. But guess who put the laws of nature into motion? It was God. If he can keep all that going, don't you think he can take care of your problems and mine? And he wants to do that. Jesus himself could come to me, all who are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. But here is a part about him being the redeemer. The last part of Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3 when he had made purifications of sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Speaking of Jesus, he came. I love how this, this song I recently listened to put it. He left the highest throne for a manger. Came among us, took on human flesh, walked among us, taught us, performed miracles, and laid his life down. Death on a cross. But then three days later, he came out of that tomb. Conquering death, conquering sin, conquering the grave. And now he's sitting at the right hand of the Father. See, God created you for one reason, to have fellowship with him. You can see that right in the beginning of Genesis. That's what he wanted. That was his idea. He's the one who reached down with his own hand and formed us. It was his idea. He, of everything in creation, he formed man. You understand how important that is? But we didn't listen. We decided to do things without listening to him, taking what we thought was right and good. And, of course, you know the story. And you follow God's acting with man patiently all through the Old Testament. People say Old Testament has judgment and wrath. Yes, it does, but every time God says, I'm going to do this, but if you simply repent and come back to me, I won't do this. And then all the prophets talking about this Messiah that would come to free his people. He came to free them, but not exactly how they thought they, he would do it. But Jesus fulfilled all the Old Testament prophecies. Over 300 of them he fulfilled. He fulfilled. 
because the Father wants to have a relationship with you. What are you doing right now to find purpose and meaning in your life? Drop all the preconceived notions, ideas. I'm asking a very serious question. What is driving you to do what you do? What's behind it? And I'm not saying those things are in them bad by themselves, but I'm telling you, if you keep chasing those things apart from God, you'll never find satisfaction, you'll never find truth, you'll never have joy. You'll end up bitter old man or woman, period. The very one who created you made you in his image. Even when you turned and shook your fist in his face and said, I want nothing to do with you, did not give up on you, but sent his son so you'd have a way to get you. Hmm. We're coming up on Christmas too. I'm going to end with this. Everybody look at that cross up here. And you've heard this a million times. I hope right now it sinks in like never before. That cross tells you, you are worth it. He didn't come to die for the dogs or for the birds or for the fish. He died for you. Because he has a relationship with you. Because you are worth it. He formed you with his own hands. And he loves you more deeply and more intimately than I can possibly describe to you this morning. Do you know him? Not here, but here. Perhaps you do. What's holding you back? Maybe he's leading you to join us here at this local body. Or maybe you just need prayer. But whatever it is, please do not walk out of here without spending more time with the Creator. Yahweh Elohim. Oh God, we thank you for your love and your mercy, and we thank you for your word. We do stand in total amazement as we read the creation account how you carefully in a personal, intimate way created us. Leaning into and breathing into us the breath of life. Father, you're also a sustainer. You're the one that provides the rain and the sun for the crops to grow, for the livestock to eat, so we may have meat and vegetables to eat and sustain our life. But more importantly, you provided the ultimate sacrifice of your son for our sins so we would have spiritual life, that we would have life with you, an abundant life. And we could spend eternity with you, with all the saints that have gone on before, and with the heavens 
the angels, living creatures, and the elders that we've read about in Revelation, we too could cry out and lay prostrate before you, holy, holy, holy. Father, I pray if anyone in this room needs to make a decision this day, whatever it may be, that you grant them wisdom, discernment, and courage to step out and to follow you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Would you stand with me, please?